I'm guessing no one in the room has a problem with this statement. Jesus is the most loving person who ever lived. Probably not. Nobody in the room's like, I don't think that's true. It's like, of course, right? Jesus is the most loving person who ever lived. In fact, if you, you know, went out and asked 100 random people on the street, you know, the random people on the street interview, and you said, I want to ask you, do you agree with this? Jesus is the most loving person who ever lived. You know, I'm guessing 99 out of 100 are going to go, of course, you know? Everybody knows that. Everybody knows that. And most people in our culture have some kind of a preconceived idea about Jesus. And a lot of that idea, if you were just to interview random people on the street, is, is like Jesus is non-confrontative, you know? He, he, he's mild-mannered um, or non-judgmental, you know? And everybody knows that one. They probably, even if they never, ever read the Bible, they've heard that one, don't judge me, you know? And they're like, I think Jesus said that sometime, right? So he's like non-judgmental, you know? He, he wouldn't force people into making hard choices. He was like the ultimate peacemaker, you know? Sought peace at all costs, you know? And and ultimately, he's just like this really lovable, like good teacher who somehow got on the wrong side of the elites, you know, and they killed him for it. And for a lot of people, that's kind of their view of Jesus, kind of this soft, mellow, mild kind of view of who Jesus is. And that is why the words in this passage that we're going to look at today are so shocking, so abrasive, and so confronting to so many people, even to many people who were raised in church. A, a while back in, in, the, uh, in the 90s, there was a project called the, the Jesus Seminar where a bunch of guys who thought they were really smart decided they'd get together and go through the accounts we have of Jesus' life and try to decide for themselves, well, we think Jesus didn't really say this. We think Jesus didn't really say this, right? And they kind of came up with this uh, really milk, toast, weak sauce version of Jesus. And uh, an author, Scott McKnight, he's criticizing this whole thing. uh, And here's what he says. Such a Jesus would have never been crucified, would never have drawn the fire that he did, would never have commanded the following that he did, and would never have created a movement that still shakes the world. And that's the truth about Jesus. And so today what we're going to do is we're going to look at a passage in our ongoing study of the book of, of Luke. And like I said, um, oftentimes, sometimes we preach through books of the Bible, sometimes we do more topical series. Uh, but we've been preaching through the book of Luke. We've been taking it about 10 or 12 weeks at, at a time and then taking a break. So we did, you know, a while ago in December, we did the book of Ruth. And then uh, we did a series for the new year, you know, to encourage you and a lot of things that maybe God has for you coming up in the new year. And then we're launching back into this verse by verse study. It'll probably take us through uh, about Easter or a couple weeks after that. So here's the thing about preaching through the scriptures this way, is you don't get to skip passages that make people feel uncomfortable. And that's a good thing. Because there's some things that Jesus says that are going to make you feel uncomfortable. They're going to make you really stop and evaluate. So everybody ready? You ready? Buckle up. All right, here we go. So to set this passage in context, and we're going to be in Luke chapter 12, I want to start with a few verses that Jesus says a little bit earlier in the chapter. And to remind you, as you're reading through the scriptures or as you're listening through the scriptures, context is so important. 
to know what came before, what came after, how does this work, how did the person who heard it in the first century, you know, with the, the Gospels, how did they understand, and, and, and what, did, what did this mean? Because this meant one thing. There's a million different applications that we can draw for our lives, but this meant one thing for them, and that's what we want to draw out, because you can... You know, there's a, there's a good value sometimes when we just pick a, you know, like one verse random out of here. You know, some of you, you have a verse that's just spoken to you, and, and there's some good value in that. But always we want to be looking and saying, what is this in context? And so to set this passage in context, I'm going to go back a little bit to chapter 12, verse 4, and we looked at this a, a few months ago. It said this, I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, and after that, can do no more, but I will show you whom to fear. Fear him who, after your body has been killed, has authority to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them is forgotten by God. Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. And so he's saying, here as he's teaching his disciples and there's a crowd of many thousands gathered around here. He's saying, hey, why would you be afraid of somebody that all they could do is kill the body? That doesn't make any sense. We're like, actually, that's kind of scary, Jesus. That's kind of what I'm scared of, right? He goes, no, no, no. Fear, when you see this word fear, don't just think being afraid. That's not the, the main point. Uh, the main point is this awe and reverence, right? That you would have an awe and a reverence and a deep respect. And if you're on the wrong side of the equation, but yeah, but there's some fear in here, right? Of who? The one who has authority for after this body. Because this body isn't going to last forever. You know that, right? Some of you are like, oh, I know that. Believe me, right? This body isn't going to last forever. And so, so this is the context. And as he goes on, he's going to talk about our time and our treasure and our talents, right? And like, why would you invest everything in here? And now that doesn't even make sense, he would say. Thinking in an eternal context, that's what this whole passage has been about leading up to it. And then uh, that brings us to verse 49 of chapter 12. And here's what these words say. I have come to bring fire on earth, fire on the earth. And how I wish it were already kindled. But I have a baptism to undergo, and what a constraint I am under until it is accomplished. So he talks about fire and, and baptism. And the baptism he's talking about, literally this constraint, it's like distress is the idea behind the word. And this is talking about his crucifixion. He knows what's coming up. And so he says, I have I, I've come to bring fire on the earth, how I wish it was already kindled. But before that... I have a baptism to undergo. And man, it's stressing me out. I'm under distress until this is completed, right? And here's the thing about this word fire. In ancient cultures, uh, fire is often associated with light. In fact, even still today, uh, what is the British word for flashlight? Torch, thank you. Yeah, I had a friend, uh, Jim, that does a lot of ministry work in Africa, and I was talking to him uh, the other day, and he said, hey, there's not really a dis- big distinction between fire and light in a lot of cultures, even in Africa today. It, it, it's very much tied together. And in fact, that really echoes what Jesus said in, uh, in John, many people's favorite scripture, John 3.16, right? 
And here's the whole passage, and he goes on to talk about light. Check this out. It says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Don't miss this. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for the fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. And see, this idea of fire in, in, in all throughout the Old Testament and in the New Testament, it, it, in the idea of coming into the light, it's, it's tied together so often with this big theme of judgment. That there'll be a time when God sifts through everything There'll be a time when everything is made right. And judgment is this time when, when not only our actions, but the thoughts and motivations of our heart come to light. My uh, kids' rooms have these blackout curtains on them, you know, because we don't like them waking up at 4.30 in the morning in the summer and walking into it and waking us up, right? And so we have these nice blackout curtains in their room. And so they, they'll sleep, and uh, we'll come in and be like, hey, it's time to get up, you know, and all sweet at first, you know. Parents, you know how this, this routine goes if you have kids, right? Hey, time to get up. And they like just roll over, ignore you, you know? And so then the next thing you do is you just pull open those curtains, right? Boom, let all the bright sunlight in. And it's like they shrink back like little bats to the back of the cave, ah, you know? They, they like cover their heads up and nothing's showing but their eyes. And, and so then if you're a good dad like me, uh, the next thing you do is pull the covers off of them. And then they can't hide from it, right? But the idea behind this is, is there, there's going to be a time when, when it's exposed. And the truth is, God sees everything. He knows everything. Nothing is hidden from him right now. That's the deception that many people live under. And so over, over and over, fire and judgment, they go together in the Bible. John the Baptist, talking about Jesus, he says, He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. The Holy Spirit for those who, who have put their faith and trust in him. And fire, which is a symbol of judgment on the world. Malachi, talking about this, and maybe this is the passage that Jesus is thinking about as he, as he speaks this out. It says, who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire. And part of judgment is, is to refine and purify. So why does Jesus wish it was kindled already, the fire? Why does he wish it was kindled already? Well, think of it this way. We think of judgment almost always in negative terms, right? Scary, negative terms. But just, judgment also is an extremely positive thing because it brings justice and it makes things right. And judgment is when everything evil and everything painful that's torn us apart in this world is made right. Finally, and once and for all, and that's a beautiful thing. In, in a culture, in ancient cultures, even in you know, the United States, uh, in small towns where there would be no judge in the town, but you'd have a circuit traveling judge, and they'd come around. When they'd come into the town, it's a bad day for some people, isn't it? But it's a really good day for some other people. 
It's a bad day for those that have ripped off and defrauded and, and, and hurt and oppressed. But it's a good day for those that are oppressed. And so Jesus says, I wish it was already kindled. Verse 51. And this is pretty strong. Do you think I came to bring peace on earth? Do you think that's what I came? No, I tell you, division. What, Jesus? Yeah, we think, you know, the angel, you remember the Christmas story? Peace on earth, goodwill to men. I've heard that one, you know, Buble was singing it. It, was, it just brought me, you know, this little peace. It was like cozy. And Jesus goes, yeah, yeah, okay. Peace, yes. When he returns, there will be the age of peace. The age of peace, but right now, here, did I come to bring peace on earth? on earth? No, I tell you, but division. From now on, there will be five and one family divided against each other. Three against two, two against three. They will be divided, father against son, son against father, mother against daughter, daughter-in-law against mother, mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. You might have seen that one coming. <laughs> the idea is this is going to bring division, the gospel, you, you know, it when you want to live your life passionately for Jesus, it may cause some strife in your life. And this happens immediately in the context after the resurrection. As the, the apostles filled with the Holy Spirit burst out into the streets and the message of Jesus begins to spread. And before you know it, households are divided. People are being torn away and arrested and put on trial and some even murdered for the name of Jesus. And this still goes on today around the world. People are disowned in cultures for following Jesus. I've heard examples of families having mock funerals for, for, for a family member or people exchange students or people that have come to the United States being afraid to go back home because in their culture, it's, not, it's common to have someone in the family kill you for converting and following Jesus as an honor killing. This still happens today still happens today, or perhaps in your life you've, you've experienced this in some way, that maybe it brings division in families, and you get together, and it's like, hey, you're welcome to come to the family gathering, but leave your little friend Jesus at home, right? We don't want to hear anything about him. You're welcome to come, but we, you know, just, just don't talk about all that Jesus stuff. Or for some of you, it's, it's just being left out, right? That you had a crew of friends or you had a group or even a family gatherings and all of a sudden there's family gatherings and you're not invited anymore. You're not invited. You know, you're not invited to the, the Friday night party. You're not invited to the spring break trip. And that's probably good because you shouldn't go on that spring break trip anyway and you know it, right? But there's this division that happens, Right? Because all of a sudden, Christ has transformed your life, and all of a sudden, there's something about the light inside of you and the way you're living. Now, this doesn't give us any excuse to be rude, to be caustic towards people, right? Because that happens too. So sometimes when you experience division, it's your own fault because you're being a jerk for Jesus. We talked about that a few weeks ago. But there's something about when you live your life for Jesus, there's just going to be a, a dividing point, Right? And there's going to be things and choices you have to make. Perhaps you've been mocked or ridiculed for living out your beliefs. People are mocked and ridiculed all the time for choosing purity in their relationships before marriage. Or maybe you found yourself in a business deal where you lost money or you lost a promotion or you were in risk of losing your job because you would not go along with the shady 
business deal. You would not go, you would not compromise what you knew was the right thing to do in the situation. It brings division. And Jesus says, don't think that just because you follow me, everything's going to be rosy. No, no, let me tell you. Let me tell you. If you're passionate about living for your life for Jesus, you will experience division, conflict, and strife in your life. Verse 54. He said to the crowd, when you see a cloud rising in the west, immediately you say, it's going to rain, and it does. And when the south wind blows, you say, it's going to be hot, and it is. Hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and the sky. How is it you don't know how to interpret the present time? And in the culture in Israel, you know, if the wind's coming and there's clouds coming from the west, that's the Mediterranean, you know, hey, humidity's coming. It's going to rain. Get ready for it, right? The wind comes from the other direction. You know, it's going to be really hot. And he's saying, you, you're pretty good at predicting the short term. You can look at life. You can make some good plans. You've got this thing dialed in. How is it that, that right now, the, this is the time, you don't recognize the time when Messiah is with you, offering life to you? How is it you don't recognize that? Verse 57, why don't you judge for yourself what is right? As you are going with your adversary to the magistrate, try hard to be reconciled on the way. Or your adversary may drag you off to the judge, and the judge turn you over to the officer, and the officer throw you into prison. I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. And remember, context, right? Context. Jesus' point here isn't giving you legal advice. If you're like, oh, wait a minute, what? Jesus, are you, you know, uh, he, he's using a story. These are parables. Parables are a made-up story or an illustration to prove a point, right? And here's the proof. Here's the lesson for you and me in this. You check the weather app, you know. Everyone's got one of those on your phone. You check that pretty frequently, I'm guessing, right? You know what's happening. You're really dialed into what's coming up you know, in the next week or two, you've got your weekend adventure plan. And so you've, you know, you've dialed in that weekend adventure, haven't you? You, you've, you take preparing for tomorrow really seriously. But do you pause to consider the most important thing? What comes after this life? Do you pause to consider that? And for so many in our culture, if you, if you ask, do you think you'll go to heaven? It's like, I don't know. I think so. I hope so. You know, I think I've been pretty good, right? And there's this sort of almost flippant attitude about eternal matters. And Jesus, in this passage, he's saying, how much sense does it make? You have temporary present matters. You know, you've got the weather dialed in, your weekend plans, all that, your 401k. You know, you're, you're making plans. You've got your summer vacation already mapped out and planned out, right? You're good at planning, but have you stopped to think about what comes next? What comes next? And he's saying this here is, guess what? As he's speaking to the the nation that he knows will go on to reject him. And nation is made up of many individuals who make choices, right? And so he's saying, you have a losing case here. And just like an Old Testament prophet, he's putting on the mantle of the Old Testament prophet saying, the judge is coming. You're missing the time when, when you are being visited by the Messiah. This is a common theme over and over in Luke. You're missing it. And so to each one of these individual people, he says, wouldn't it make sense? 
You have a losing case, and Paul tells us all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We all have a losing case before God, before a holy and a righteous God. Wouldn't it make sense to be serious about that before you land in front of the judge? You have a losing case. Now, imagine this way. Imagine this. Imagine you committed a heinous crime, a heinous crime, just a horrible thing. Everyone knows you're guilty. Your lawyer tells you it's a hopeless case. Prepare yourself for the worst. There's nothing we can do. Just sit here and wait for your sentence. And then as you're sitting in that cell, thinking about the future or lack thereof, you get a letter in the mail from your adversary, from from the, the person you committed the crime against. And it says, hey, I know this is not gonna go well for you. So let's meet. I wanna reconcile. You would be a fool not to take that opportunity, right? And that's what Jesus is saying here. That's what he's saying here. So the crowd is hearing all this, and here's what's going through their mind. Man, that's heavy, Jesus, right? That's heavy. Remember, he shifted. He's talking to the crowd now. Verse 54, it said he, he said to the crowd. So he was talking to his disciples. Now he like looks up, and he's speaking loud, and he's projecting to the whole crowd that's around him. So there's somebody in the crowd thinking, so, so I guess what you're saying is there's good people, and there's bad people, and it's going to go pretty good for the good people, but for all the bad people, it's going to be pretty bad, right? Jesus kind of like karma, right? That's what you're saying. And so somebody pipes up from the sidelines and asks Jesus this question. He says, hey, um, and remember, we're in 13. The other thing about context that you have to remember so you're like, oh, we finished the chapter. We're, we're out of here early. Sorry, guys. <laughs> Sorry, guys. Here's the thing. Numbers weren't put into the Bible until t- about 1240 AD. So something like, you know, 900 years of not having any numbers. And then a lot of these ancient texts, you know, that go back thousands of years without having any numbers. The point is, the thought many times goes past the chapter heading or the chapter. And so to take it in context, keep reading. So this is all part of the same conversation. And so in in verse 1 of chapter 13, he says this. Now there were some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. So pause there for a second. Pilate, Pontius Pilate, you've all heard of him. And you've all heard of him because you know he plays a key role in Jesus' crucifixion, right? But here's, here's the thing. Even without knowing what we know from the historical accounts in the Gospels of Pilate, we know a bunch of other stuff, too, about Pilate. I mean, he was the prefect over the whole region. Uh, he was constantly having run-ins with the Jews and their religious traditions. And in fact, he was dismissed sometime later, uh, shortly after Jesus' crucifixion, because he put down a... Uh, uh, uprising, what he thought was an uprising, and, and the uh, party of Herod and some others, kind of with all this political intrigue, accused him of just brutality and stuff, and so he was dismissed from his position. So we know a lot about Pilate historically, and then we discover a lot about him in the historical accounts that we have in scriptures. And this is the only historical account. Now, this is history. This is the only historical account we have of this incident, but this incident sure fits with everything we know 
from other historical sources about Pilate. And so here's the thing, you know, there's these Jews that are in the temple worshiping God, probably the Passover here. This is the highest and holiest occasion. And, and Pilate's forces come in. We don't know, you know, what caused it or anything, but somehow Pilate's forces come in and they massacre and murder these people. And it says the, the blood, their blood was mixed with the sacrifices. That, that, that would be like in our age, Lord forbid, but terrorists coming into a service like this during communion. Awful, horrible to think of. And this is shocking to them. It's shocking. And so they tell them about this. Okay, so there's good people and there's bad people and good people get good things coming, bad people get bad things coming. And Jesus says, well, let's, let's just think that through. Jesus answered, do you think these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. In other words, let's think about this. Do you think, honestly, because this was the idea in the time, you know, and this is the idea many of us has, you know, I, I think I'm just good enough, and if I can get just good enough, I'll tip the scales to be, you know, okay. I'm kind of iffy on how good is good enough, you know, but, you know, that's the way we think. He says, do you think they were any worse than, you know, any of the rest of you? The point is, no, they weren't. But what happened to them? They died in a very unexpected way. I mean, they just got up one day and went to go offer their sacrifices. They were serving God even. I mean, they were doing like the highest, holiest thing in their culture that they could do and, and uh, died, snuck up on them. And he says, guess what? That's life. It's going to sneak up on you. It might sneak up on you, right? And so he said, unless you repent, you all, too, will perish. And this isn't just talking about dying. Remember, we went back and looked at context. There's a finality. There's an eternal context in what he's saying here. Verse 4, or those 18, now Jesus gives them an example. Oh, yeah, oh, remember, this was in the headlines, you know. This was all over the newsstands the other day, you know, on the Jerusalem Post tablet, you know. The Daily Mail, Jerusalem. Were those 18 who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them, do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? So maybe there were some construction workers, Right. And they got up and they went to, to work. And we know Jesus, a short while later, is going to heal somebody at the pool of Siloam. So they were working on this beautiful tower in this area. They were the salt of the earth kind of people, you know. Just the hard workers. And they were out there. And they got up one morning, you know, they went off. They kissed their kids goodbye. They went off, started, went to work. And all of a sudden, maybe the ground rumbled a little bit. Maybe somebody actually accidentally kicked a brace out. Who knows? But tower collapses. Gone. He goes, you think they were worse sinners than you? Do you think they were worse sinners than you? They were more guilty than all the rest of you guys? And the point he's trying to make here is obviously no. They weren't. They were just like you. Not worse than you, not better than you. They're like you. And he says, unless you too repent, 
Unless you repent, you too will all perish. And so Jesus takes the idea and knocks karma out, which is a stupid idea anyway, if you know, you've ever turned on your television, right? You know, good things don't happen always to good people and bad things don't always happen to bad people, right? We just know that. And the point here that Jesus is making as he does this is, hey, guess what? All of you someday are going to face this unless Jesus returns first, right? Unless Jesus returns first, let's pray for that, let's hope for that, but unless he does, at some point, death's gonna sneak up on you. It may be when you're 70 or 80 or 90, you may actually have a decent idea that it's coming. But, but just like these guys, there's absolutely no guarantee of that. And you're reminded of that just about every time you, you listen to the news on the radio or or turn on your TV, or every time there's a natural disaster. That you don't always get, you know, this is, these people are just like, you know, the guy that gets up in the morning and kisses his kids goodbye, calls his wife on his way home from work, and, and then doesn't make it home, right? And the point here is, there's a time to make things right with God. There's a time to repent. And that time is now. Time passes quickly. You don't always have time in life to, to do what you think you want to get done. No one is guaranteed another day. You think you're going to make things right with God later, and now you're just, no, it doesn't always work that way, right? Another pastor I respect says, here's what repentance is. This is another word we don't talk about too much. It's not a real popular topic. It's much more easy to get people to come to church when you're, you know, when we talk about like self-help, I mean, we like that, you know, self-actualization, being all that you can be, you know, seven ways to have a happier life. It's easier. Repentance, not so, not such a popular topic in our culture, is it? So for a lot of people, they don't even know what the word really means. Repentance is three things, really. It's this, it's confession. And confession is agreeing with God. I am a sinner, I sinned. I have sinned multiple times, right? In this situation, I blew it. I sinned. And not a but. This is, you know, but you got to understand. No, no, no. Just I sinned. I sinned. You are right. I'm wrong. I'm sorry. There's no excuse. That's confession. Confession is acknowledging the reality of the situation. That in my efforts to come to you, I fall short over and over and over again. And if you don't believe that, just go read the Ten Commandments and then compare it to Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount, you know. Oh, good job. You never create, committed adultery. How, how about lust? Good job. You never murdered. How about hating? Oh, and the one coveting, strongly desiring something that's not yours to desire. We're all busted, Right? And that's confession. It's confessing before God. I, I've sinned. The second part of it, though, is contrition. Because there's some people that are fine of going like, yeah, okay, I sinned. No excuses. But there's no, there's no weight of that sin. There's no weightiness to that. There's no, you, you don't feel that at all. You don't feel the fact that sin is what put Jesus on the cross. 
Sin is why your Savior died for you. And contrition is when your emotions and your expressions are present, genuinely feeling the weight of sin. It's, it's the, you know, we'll see in a few chapters down, down in Luke, it's, it's the tax collector, the sinner, who, who instead of praying, oh God, thank you, you haven't made me like those other sinners, he, he doesn't even think he's worthy to look up to heaven. He beats his chest and says, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's contrition, right? That's contrition. And the third part of confession is change or repentance, excuse me. The third part of repentance is change. That's literally, repentance means to turn, the word, to turn. That when you're walking away from God, you turn and you walk towards God. John the Baptist says this. When people were coming to him for a baptism of repentance, he says, do the works in keeping with repentance. In other words, true repentance produces change in your life. Not that you don't mess up again. We all, you know, there's things you struggle with. There's things you will struggle with. And that's, not, that's not the point, but it's, the point is that it begins to create a change in your life. First in your desires, you really want to stop. You really want to change. You really want to learn. You really want to grow. You really want to be different. You don't want to go back. First in your desires, but then also in your actions, You work to stay humble. You work to grow in God. You work on connecting with godly people so you have better influences in your life, right? You apologize when you're wrong. Parents, apologizing to your kids when you're wrong is one of the best examples you can send. Just go out, yeah, daddy blew it. I'm sorry, no excuse, that was wrong. I sinned. Will you forgive me? It's one of the best examples you can set for your kids. You say yes to the Holy Spirit, cooperating with the Holy Spirit. When he, when he convicts, when he whispers in your ear, when he asks you to take a step and a risk for him, you say yes. You don't resist him, right? And here, here's the point. For followers of Jesus, for some that have never repented, that have never put their faith and trust in Jesus, that's, that's the beginning point. But it isn't the it doesn't stop when you put your faith and trust in Jesus. In fact, um, Martin Luther said this. uh, 500 years ago, Martin Luther, famous reformer, he nailed 95 statements or theses to a door uh, on a church in in Germany because they were selling indulgences for sin. In other words, you could just buy an indulgence and think, wow, my sins are, are forgiven. And, and the first thing that he nailed up on this door, and I've been there, it's in Germany, seen where this was. It says this, when our Lord, Luther said, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he intended that the entire life of believers should be repentance. The entire life of believers should be repentance. In other words, there's a, a beginning point, a, a turning from sin and trusting in the good news that Jesus saves sinners, but it's not nearly just a, okay, you're done with it. There's a constant thing so that when you blow it, you start again at step one, confession, contrition, change. God grows you. He begins to transform you when you blow it. Confession, you don't, you don't stop that pattern. And it's all tied to the fact that you are forgiven like we celebrated here, that you find complete forgiveness. And the overwhelming love of Jesus that's been poured out and shown for you is the motivator for you to continue in a pattern of repentance. 
in your life as a follower of Jesus. The author of Hebrews says this, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Verse six, and this is what we're gonna end with, one little parable. Jesus concludes this thought here. This is the end of the section. He says this, Jesus told this parable, a man had a fig tree growing in his vineyard and he went to look for fruit on it, but did not find any. So he said to the man who took care of the vineyard, for three years now, I have been coming to look for fruit on this fig tree and haven't found any. Cut it down. Why should it use up the soil? So you got a fig tree and a vineyard. There's lots of different stories here. Jesus is like, wow, Jesus, you're just all over the map today, you know? Judges, magistrates, fig trees, vineyards. What are you talking about, Jesus? See, Jesus is alternating between individuals, people's response to God, and the nation's response to God. And so he just warns, unless you all repent, and now this is more directed at a nation. But you remember, a decision of a nation is made up by millions or thousands of decisions of who? Individual people, right? And so here, here's what he says. He says, there's this, there's this vineyard and a fig tree. This was common. Uh, or there's a fig tree and a vineyard, rather. This is common. It provides shade. You know, you could kind of double up the resources. Fig trees grew all over there. And here's the thing. A fig tree would only take three years to grow to maturity. And so this farmer is taking good care of this. He's making sure it has all the right conditions. He's bringing it to maturity. And then he comes out and there's a fig tree and no fruit. Three years. The point here is the farmer can expect there to be fruit on the tree at this time. This is not an unreasonable expectation. This is a reasonable expectation that there's fruit on this tree, that there's figs on this tree. It's been long enough. And here's the interesting thing. Um, it, really, this is a warning, a, a prophetic warning to a whole people group saying, you're, again, what well, Jesus started by saying, how is it you cannot recognize this present time? I've been, G Jesus, in the work of his ministry, he's a couple of years into his ministry at this point. He's very close to the time when he'll go to the cross. I've been working. I've been proclaiming the kingdom. I've been healing people. How is it you're not seeing? How is it you're not re repenting and responding? Many people did, but the majority of the nation didn't, right? And so it's this prophetic warning. Now, here's the cool thing. Verse 8. Sir, the man replied. So you have, you know, the owner of the vineyard, and then you have the, the one that's, that's tilling the vineyard. And both figures in this are God. Both figures are God, represent God. He says, sir, the man replied, leave it alone for one more year, for one more year, and I'll dig around it and fertilize it. I'll, I'll bury, you know, I'll put manure all over it. I'll make sure it's, it's got the richest soil. If it bears fruit next year, Fine. If not, then cut it down. And this shows the patience of God. The patience of God. And here's the application, and here's the takeaway for us today is this. God is patient. God is patient. I mean, that's his heart. Wait, 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 wait. Okay, I know it can be expected to bear fruit at, at this time, but let's just give it a little bit more time. Jesus says, I'm giving you more opportunity. And after I'm, after I'm gone, 
The apostles are going to preach and invite you to be part of my kingdom, to be part of my family. I'm going to give you all kinds of opportunity. He, he says here, God is patient. God is patient. Just one more year. Just one more year. And I want to, get, I want to fertilize it, put manure on it. I'm going to do everything I can do for it. I'm going to try my best to get some fruit growing here. But if not, you've got to face reality. This is a fruitless tree, and he says, cut it down. And this is it. God is patient. But there's an urgency for you to respond to him. He is patient with you. He is patient with you. And I bet as you look back at your life, you could see how his patience has worked itself out in your life over and over and over again in seasons where, for some of you, 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 you spent decades saying no to Jesus. You grew up, but you, it never really, you know, you never really made a commitment to Jesus. You grew up in church, and then you spent maybe a decade or two decades sort of stiff-arming God and going, no, 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 but he kept pulling you back. He kept drawing you in, and some of you, you're here today because of the patience of God. Others of you, the patience of God is the fact that you are here today, right now. You are here today, and this message is the fertilizer, or we could call it the manure. Some of you are like, Hard message. Okay, let's just call it manure. Spread some manure on it. Let's let them hear the word of God. Come on, be encouraged. Let's let them encounter my, my spirit in worship and feel that, wow, God loves me and that, forgive, that forgiveness that's offered to me. Some of you, that, that's what this is. This is the fertilizer. This is the manure, but you have to respond. You have to respond to him. And there's an urgency to it. He is not slow in keeping his promises. We saw that last week. So we talked about his return and some count slowness, but he wills that what? That none should perish, but all should come to repentance, right? There's an urgency. Later may not come. You may not have as much time as you think. And here's the thing. If you've here and you're, you haven't put your faith and trust in Jesus, remember we talked about the letter from the adversary, be reconciled. The scriptures, the scriptures are our love letter from God. It's his love letter to us. The message of the gospel is his love letter to us saying, you have a losing case. We all have sinned and fall short of the, of the glory of God, but Romans, are, the wages of sin is death. That's the wages of sin. But God demonstrates his own love to us in this, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that he raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. And for some of you, this is the love letter to you. This is that, please be reconciled. In fact, Paul at one point says, we plead with you, be reconciled to God. Stop stiff-arming him. Stop saying no to him. Return, repent. That's part of it, isn't it? Repent. You confess. You feel the weight of it. You con you're contrite. And you change. After he, after he changes you, he begins to transform you, right? You repent. And for you, if, you're, if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, here's where this lands for you is, what do you need to do business with God about? 
What is it in your life that God is asking you to confess or be contrite for or to change? Because like Luther said, confession or repentance is the whole of the Christian life. It's the experience of continually coming back to him, cooperating with what his Holy Spirit wants to do in your life, right? Not resisting him. What is the thing he's asking you to do? What is the Holy Spirit prompting you about that you're currently ignoring? Would you stand with me? As we bow our heads and close our eyes, I just want to give an opportunity. There's no magic formula or magic prayer you pray that makes you in or part. But there's a work that God does in your heart. And it involves repentance and it involves recognizing your need for Jesus. And it involves fully embracing what he did for you when he died on the cross. So if you want to express that, you can just pray this prayer after me, either in the quietness of your heart or out loud. Lord Jesus, I know I've sinned. I want to give you my life. I want to turn from my sin. I ask for your forgiveness. Would you come into my life? Would you transform me from the inside out? Would you give me eternal life? In Jesus' name. And Lord, for all the rest of my friends, I just want to ask that you would bless them, that you would show them exactly how this applies in their lives. And you would give them the courage to do what you're calling them to do. And they would feel the weightiness of this. And we pray these things in your name. Amen.